and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical, theoretical, and educational contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to uh, alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out. In addition to self-published works, I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics and zines and museum studies. I have a master's in English, also from UF, and I make self-published comics. And and I, so we're going to get into the topic, and I admit, I don't know anything. This is like completely Remus going <laughs> through this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't give you a chance to read my notes, so that's my fault. Um... It's all right. <laughs> but today I actually wanted to talk about research um, because this, well, this is a research-based podcast, so it seems relevant. Indeed. Uh, and this is also something that's a little near and dear to my heart because um, when I was teaching undergrad courses, I actually did a lot of work on like what is research and how you research. Um, because in my context at UF, which is, again, um, a very STEM-focused school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I was usually teaching lower divisions, so like freshman and sophomore classes, so students that were sort of like newer to college-level writing. Um, my students knew what research was, right? But they hadn't really been taught how to do it in mm-hmm. our like humanities classroom. Um, and then, you know, a lot of other professors at the same level as me sort of just would, like, assume they already knew and not actually, like, teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like talking about this because when we actually started drawing a dialogue back in 2017, so five years yes. ago. Yeah. Um, it's been a long time. Um, <laughs> one of my goals was to use this as a space to learn how to research because um, at my undergrad art school, they didn't really teach us that Mm -hmm. and I wanted to go to grad school so I knew I had to learn but because I wasn't enrolled in a school I didn't have access to any of those resources and I kind of just had to figure out stuff on my own Mm -hmm. (laughs) like how to access stuff and how to find what I wanted and it was hard um so I I was helping you (laughs) okay yeah yes Kathy did help me that's true I don't mean to diminish Kathy's role Oh my. <laughs> but just like figuring out like where you could even go to find stuff for free, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. that's really hard or like knowing how to start, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so for our purposes though, I'm not going to talk about it the way I would to my students because research one looks pretty different when you aren't affiliated with a school, and I'm not assuming that everyone that listens to this is with a school. Mm-hmm. Um and two this is an educational podcast, but we haven't started assigning homework yet. Um, so the research that I'm thinking about mostly is researching for pleasure, right? Like, I'm interested in something and I want to know more about it. Not, I need to find sources for a paper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which are sort of different frameworks. Because I am the way that I am, I do want to super briefly touch on, like, the history and ethics of research, um, and then what I mostly want to do is share a bunch of research resources for folks that maybe like aren't know what they want to learn about, but don't know where to go to find free stuff or like aren't sure what it means if a source is academic versus not academic, like all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to add here, Kathy, before I jump in? Oh, I love this. I mean, I love 
when we talk about, uh, just like, I feel like you see a lot of do your own research, that type of thing, research Mm -hmm. this. And often, often for most people, that means do a Google search, but Google, uh, has a lot of biases, Mm -hmm. right? And like, they're a huge company and there's a, a lot of things. It's not a, it's not a good form of research. And so like, um, uh, I think this is helpful for everyone. Yeah. And I'm excited you're doing it. Cool. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in then. Um, So first, research is one of those words that has approximately one million different meanings, depending (laughs) on the context, right? So research can be like someone, a scientist designing a study and seeing what happens in that study and recording that data, right? Um, Another example is like, say the comic I'm working on is set in my childhood town. So when I visit my dad, I walk around my neighborhood and take a bunch of pictures for reference. That's also research. Mm. Um, Queer theory, which we talked about a couple months ago, um, is also a kind of research methodology because it's a way of taking a source, so like information, whatever you're looking at, and analyzing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this sort of like super broad idea of research that can be applied in a lot of different ways, but we can say it's basically examining stuff to learn about it mm-hmm. in one way or another. And then from there it gets more specific depending on like the kind of thing you're looking at, what field you're in, um, what your goal is, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, all these methods come from a particular cultural context. Um, and the methods that I've sort of highlighted and that are, I think it's fair to say, like most common to us as like um, researchers in the United States, um, things like scientific inquiry, observation, analysis, um, close reading, all that stuff are very like Western methods, right? They sort of come from a European lineage of um, knowledge and what that means. Mm. Um, whether you're looking at it from, like, the philosophy side or the science side. Um, so I did want to share a tiny bit about indigenous critique of research. Um, so I'm going to quote something from Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang um, from an article titled, Our Words Refusing Research. Um, so to quote... The, ethics, the ethical standards of the academic industrial complex are a recent development, and like so many post-civil rights reforms, do not always do enough to ensure that social science research is deeply ethical, meaningful, or useful for the individual or community being researched. Social science often works to collect stories of pain and humiliation in the lives of those being researched for commodification. Um, they go on to talk about uh, social science in the, the context of settler colonialism, which I believe we've talked about, but basically um, settler colonialism is a specific um, type of colonialism where you take land from indigenous people and then erase the indigenous people that live there through genocide, through assimilation, you know, like whatever mm. tactics, mm-hmm. right? Which is different from other types of colonialism where you're not necessarily taking the land, but you're like sort of co- but anyway. Um, 
So they go on to say, in this context of like research and settler colonialism, knowledge of the self slash others became the philosophical justification for the acquisition of bodies and territories and the rule over them. Thus, the right to conquer is intimately connected to the right to know. I know, therefore I conquer, therefore I am. Mm, um, yes. So, yeah, right. So they're talking, of course, to social science research specifically which is historically and contemporarily uh based on mainly like western social scientists going to these uh cultural other communities and observing documenting extracting knowledge from that community without making that a horizontal or collaborative process right so they're not offering anything back to the community they're just sort of taking that knowledge and then going back and being like look at how these people do it and then that knowledge historically gets used to further oppress and mm -hmm. destroy those communities, right? Um, so I wanted to raise that here because, you know, even though that's they're talking about social sciences, that sort of like extractive method of research permeates throughout all of it, right? Throughout sort of like a lot of how we think about like what research is, what counts as academic research specifically um they're used to, i mean we can even think about like they're it's changing now but there's such a there's still sort of a bias in academia against like especially depending on the field that you're in against subjective or like personal views of things right like objectivity mm. is this like highly valued which right. there's no such thing as objectivity, but like the idea of objectivity is highly valued, um, which again sort of comes from this culture of. Um, we talked about the not that pretty recently. I yeah, I, I think we did. Yeah, um, like objectivity and the mm -hmm. violence of that. Yeah, so worth reiterating, right, is that um, not because I'm like, oh, all of our listeners are going to go out and <laughs> go to these communities and do this, but because anything you read um, in that context, you want to be like sort of critical of where it's coming from and the roots of the like actual methods used. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is making me think about uh, Stamped from the beginning, that book. Uh... That's Ibram X. Kendi, correct? Uh, yes. I'm not sure. I don't think I've read it. Um, so, like, so, like, so yeah, it's, like, Ibram, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. the history of racism, right? And, yes, Ibram X. Kendi. Um, and, uh, I mean, like, thinking about, like, what it was, like, it's, like, uh, uh, like, uh, settlers uh, went into these different spaces by indigenous people and then just, like, made up uh facts about mm -hmm. them yeah yeah <laughs> and that's like the history of racism that's like where racism came from were these made-up facts <laughs> no totally <laughs> to, to justify violence exactly right? right and you see that you know you see that obviously um a lot of the critique centers on social sciences and like hard sciences because those are disciplines that do a lot of extractive work but like even in like history english philosophy like mm -hmm. it's still ha that's still there those methods still get repeated even if mm -hmm. like the tools being used are different um mm -hmm. so i wanted to shut that out um i mean it's interesting because i think this is something that we've always critiqued on the yes. show is canon and yeah. like always crit criticizing just because it's 
historical doesn't mean that it's valuable or correct. Right. <laughs> or like just because it is historical doesn't mean that it's like objectively correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. um cuz there's a lot you could say about like what objectivity means but um i you know i'm obviously we're not going to get too deep in the weeds here maybe one day in the future we can do a whole episode on like the history of research ethics um no i love it i mean i love i love um we have to talk about the why we're doing this and then uh critique, critique yes. the why and now um as we move forward we can hold that in our minds Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to sort of transition into like actually looking for stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, to go back to what I said earlier, if you're not affiliated with a school, so if you're not like a student or a worker at a school um, or another like sort of academic institution, it can be really challenging to find things that don't cost a billion dollars, right? Or even know where to go because um, academic publishing i'm gonna say this a couple times but academic publishing is a scam Um, oh yeah and a lot of stuff is priced very high right so especially if you're interested in reading more academic things it's like not very accessible if you don't know where to go it's it's priced high for the people reading it and for Mm -hmm. the people writing it we don't get paid yeah yeah i'm gonna i I just I just signed a contract to get something published and I don't get paid in this exclusive contract for two years. So I yep. can't even share it for free. I mean, I yep. will, but. <laughs> yeah, I think I say, that I, I, uh, I, uh, I'll note this later too, but I'll, I'll say, uh, I, I, there might be, some people might believe, and it would be fair of them to believe because every other type of publishing works like this, that, um, academics get paid and academic editors get paid. But mm-hmm. no one gets paid. <laughs> Academic writing is not paid. You are not paid to publish. You just have to do it if you want to have a career at a university. Yeah. In theory, it's part of your university salary. But yeah. if you aren't affiliated with a institution, then you aren't getting paid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and that's also true for, like, editors and peer reviewers. Um, yes, I'm also a peer reviewer for free. Yes, all of that labor is just done yeah. for free. So the money just goes to the publishing house. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, like, to sort of get us back, um, I want to do a little demystification around, like, academic sources and, like, the language that's used with them. Um, and then I'm just going to straight up, I have, like, a list of places you can just go to get stuff for free. Cool. Um, because again it's a scam and no one's really making money off of it so just take it it's fine there's <laughs> there's no like ethical like you're not taking money out of the author's pocket there's no money to take <laughs> like, um and so first of course i also want to say like academic writing isn't the only valuable or credible writing for research um obviously there's things like primary sources which are firsthand accounts of a particular topic or era Um, But even putting that aside, lots of people, like smart, credible, great people, share information for free through social media, um, through blogs, all those sorts of things, right? And that's just as valuable, even if it's not in this sort of like traditional peer-reviewed format. Mm -hmm. Um, The main thing is just that like 
with that kind of writing, and I, we kind of said this already, and I hope it's obvious, but do your dil- due dil- diligence to check that the source is reliable because it's also super easy to spread misinformation through those channels, right? Um, especially on like Twitter and TikTok, where stuff just gets circulated without any context. Um, mm-hmm. And this is also true even for like articles in like reputable newspapers and sources we might take for granted. Um, like how many times has an article come out that's been like, oh, global warming is like good, actually, it's fine. And then you read the author bio and it's like, this guy straight up works for Exxon or like yeah. is married to an oil lobbyist or whatever. Um, yeah. Oh, someone <laughs> wrote about uh, my book like that recently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like. I was like, oh, this is just like some, I, some, some people let me know, obviously you all know that, uh, the breakaways is like, uh, a, a, a favorite of, um, people to ban and talk mm-hmm. about banning. Um, and, uh, someone had uh, sent me a screenshot of an article about some bigot talking about my book and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, and then it was like the New York times. I was like, yeah. Hey, <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> yeah. So and it like, wasn't true. The things they were saying were, were not true. <laughs> yeah, it's... It kind anyway. of... Bu- it just kind of bums me out because I feel like things like the New York Times used to be more reputable. You know, they have they have fact checkers, but you gotta, you gotta check if it's, like, if it's op-ed, if it's, yeah. like, there's still stuff that you gotta check. Yeah, that's an important point, is, like, op-ed, things that are opinion pieces aren't as, like, verified, um, and- They aren't at all, because it's opinion. Right, and they also love to publish stuff to get clicks, um, which Mm -hmm. often means bigots, so, um, Don't look up the article, because you're going to give them clicks, my friends. Yes, don't, yeah, just don't read the article. Don't, if you see stuff like that, don't read it. Don't click it. All you're doing is, Don't even read it, just don't even click it, because that's a problem. Because once they just track how many people click that stuff, and mm-hmm. then if it gets a bunch of clicks, even if it's people like clicking to be like this sucks, they don't care. They're just like, great, it got a lot of clicks. Let's publish more. Yeah, that's not how data works for them. Yeah, so you just don't engage. Anywho, with it. keep going with this, my friend. <laughs> anyway, my point is, I, I I'm very pro using that sort of stuff uh, in research. I think it's really important. I think it's like a great way to like make research more equitable. You just always want to check what the person like what their deal is <laughs> do a quick little google just... i almost think you can even talk to people if like you're if someone's on twitter or if they're on tiktok or something they're a human being yeah you can just talk to them and you yeah you can also just do that and also like i think i think that i see this on tiktok a lot is someone will be reputable in the sense that like they'll be they'll they're I'll see someone be like, I'm a psychologist, and then, like, here's my opinion on blah, blah, blah. And then that gets spread around as fact, right? Instead of just, like, mm. one psychologist's opinion. So that's another thing to keep in mind is, like, you have to sort of differentiate between, like, okay, this is someone's opinion based on their experience and their knowledge versus, like, okay, this is straight up, like, not that facts exist, but, you know, and there's still, like, you gotta sort of I be mean, nuanced. yeah, we're already getting in the weeds a little bit, right? So, like, people's experiences... Mm-hmm. and uh can be researched based on the fact that that is something that that they have lived and it's the yeah. truth mm-hmm. but there's also like scientific research and studies mm-hmm. and so like and that can get a little messy when you're talking about to, uh, like something that a psychologist says right yeah for sure so like yeah yeah 
especially because a lot of the times that stuff doesn't always agree. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, all this to say is you should also oops, you should also be critical of who's writing what in academic source, right? The mm-hmm. main difference is that academic work for the most part is peer reviewed. And what peer review means is that it was basically read by other experts on the topic who then give feedback, basically saying this should be published, here's some edits you need to make, or this should not be published. Because it's like, here's all the things that are wrong with it. And Kathy, you have peer reviewed, right? I have. I've peer peer reviewed a couple of things, but it's almost always like, there isn't a lot of depth to the reviewing I've done. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it's always been like a completed thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm always just like, I have the, I have a question about this, or I have a question about that, and then they can resolve the questions. But I'm not out there, like, doing a cross-research project to right. verify, right? No, of course not. And that's the, the idea is that they send it to experts, so people that are already familiar with the topic, so that they don't have to do, right? Like, it wouldn't make sense for me to peer review something I don't know anything about, because then I would have to do all that extra labor. And it's, but it's not a perfect system, right? So no. again, and it doesn't account for things like bias necessarily. Um, so no matter what, again, just sort of like check out people, talk to them, remember that everyone's human. Um, so th- so far, I've named three basic types, basically, of sources, right? So primary sources, academic sources, and then to sort of cover that. Um, non-academic but still like useful credible um we call what i would call that in teaching as authoritative sources um so again like people's uh and, and these things sort of cross so like someone's like first-hand account is an authoritative source it might also be like a, it's also a primary source right so but mm. um just sort of keeping in mind that like there's different levels to this but where do you go to find them yeah so i'm going to start with primary sources um primary source material is stuff like photographs interviews field notes pamphlets zines um anything that comes from like the era you're interested in um that you can sort of use to understand the like what was happening at that time right um so that can that can also be very contemporary material like i think we often think of this stuff as very like historical but like um if I'm working with a zine that was published this year, that's a primary source, right? It's just a recent primary source. Um, so, so this sort of material usually lives in like archives, um, which are usually or often, not usually, often connected to universities or museums and can be like close to the public. Um, not all institutional archives are. Uh, usually, you have to make an appointment, like. I don't know of any archives that just, I mean, everything's weird now because of COVID, but even pre-COVID, I don't know of any archives that were just like, yeah, walk in, no problem. Um, Because they have to sort of like prepare the materials for you. Um, Yeah, they're they're not like, they're not like libraries or stacks where everything, that's that's the difference when libraries say it's in the stacks. What that means is that they're readily available on a convenient shelf. Um, but a lot of archives just have labeled boxes, and mm-hmm. you they can't let just let people rummage through the boxes, so they need to be able to get it out for you, and that takes some time. 
Yeah, so, but a lot of a lot of uh, archives, I mean, one, there's a lot of archives that are grassroots and so not affiliated with anything that have physical locations that you can make an appointment at. Um, but even some institutional archives, if you're an independent researcher, all you have to do is just make an appointment and just be like, hey, this is what I'm working on, and they'll set you up. So um, that's always a thing. But, you know, also, it's still COVID. A lot of places aren't open. <laughs> so there's also a lot of archives that are available online, open access. Um, and I'm going to shout out a few of them. Mm. So the first I want to highlight is ACT UP's Oral History Project, um, which is a collection of 187 interviews with members of ACT UP, which is, of course, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, um, a very important AIDS activist group, um, still around, but I think people usually associate them with like the 80s, 90s. Um, the interviews are all available online, and we'll drop the link, of course. And there's also transcripts with all the interviews, which is nice. I also am going to shout out the Houston LGBTQ History website, which is maybe my favorite grassroots online archive. Because um, it's, like, just this one guy who gets material from, like, his, his uh, like, from a bunch of different people and then, like, digitizes it. Mm. so they have a bunch of it's you know texas based so there's a lot of focus on like texas periodicals and uh early like texas gay things but they also have a whole bunch of sort of like national u.s and canada uh early queer periodicals so like magazines pamphlets um some really interesting stuff and again all of that's just sort of up for free and an incredibly if you look at this website it is like it looks like a GeoCities website, um, <laughs> which is like the best thing in the world to me. <laughs> I love an easy code. Why, why complicate your coding? It's great. I, I love a table with a beveled edge. Um, so I so they're great. You, all of their stuff is online for free. You can just click through, get the PDFs. Um, I also want to shout out uh, Chicana Por Mi Raza, which is a collection of oral histories and archival objects from the, and I'm quoting from their website, um, the imperiled uh, Chicanx and Latinx histories of the long civil rights era. Um, so they ha work, you know, they digit they like basically go around and interview um, uh, Chicanx and Latinx people that were heavily involved, right, in the civil rights era, and then they also digitize uh, like material that they have like kept from that part of their lives, right? So like meeting notes, pamphlets, flyers, that kind of stuff. Um, so very cool, very cool collection. Um, and then the last specific archive I wanted to shout out is the um, Digital Transgender Archive, um, which is a huge like database of materials by trans people, about trans people. Um, they got zines, they got pamphlets, they got medical literature, they got uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it is really cool, and I'm a huge fan of that. Um, and I also am going to share in the show notes, um, sorry, I hit my microphone, so I'm just going to say that again. I'm also going to share in the show notes, uh, my, my mentor, actually, Dr. Galvin at UF, has a list of open access digitized grassroots media on her website, um, that we can share, um, so she put together this like big list of uh, all these different archives that are open access and have specifically digitized like so grassroots media just means like stuff that was made not made by like a company right so like groups of people or like a single person 
um, not affiliated with uh, an institution or a company or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. So Um, I have a couple I want to shout out. Yeah, please. Um, I want to shout out our uh, episode from June 1st, 2018. So it's been four years. Um, But we did an interview with Milana Kronglaub, um, which is... I don't think I said her last name right. Krongelb. Mm-hmm. Milana Krongelb, um, who is a curator at the Sarah Doyle Women's Center um, at Brown University. They have a zine collection there. Um, I don't think it's digitized, but mm-hmm. there's that's a zine collection that you can visit. And there's probably zine collections everywhere. Oh, yeah. And then also, I just became a member of Queer Archive Work here in Providence as well. And Queer Archive Work is also a collection of queer zines and self-published work. Um, and we are currently uh, digitizing just we're just a catalog, right? We haven't even cataloged the collection. Um, so right now we're digitizing the catalog. Um, and those, so those are a couple of res- resources. Um, I, it seems like those would be in person, so they aren't necessarily digitized research. But those mm-hmm. are just a couple that I... We have uh, tangential relationships with, so. Yeah, that's great. There's another, if you're in Florida, um, I didn't shout them out because this is, in my list was just digital, but yeah. um, the Civic Media Center in Gainesville also has the largest zine archive in the U.S. Southeast. Um, not digitized. I, as far as I know, they're back open to the public, so if you're ever in or around Gainesville, you can just like pop. It's also a an info shop and like a leftist radical library. You can just pop right in and go like check out this. You can't check them out, but you can go look at the zines. <laughs> yeah, and I think and I think uh, there's a lot of stuff like this. And mm-hmm. something to keep in mind when you're talking about librarians and archivalists, they want people to look at this work mm-hmm. and to interact with it and to enjoy it. It sounds like you are asking people for like a huge favor to maybe scan something in for you or do something like that. But that is why they're there and mm-hmm. why they they have this collection. They want people to be researching it. They want people to be interacting with it. So even if that seems scary, if you see something that you really want to uh, read and research, uh, people will oftentimes be really willing to scan it in for you and get, and send it over to you. Yeah, and um, actually, I just encourage you to do it. If you're curious, do it. Yeah, for sure. And that actually also reminds me, um, if you are looking for something and you're not sure even where like if you just like are like i really want to find something by like this artist or whatever but you're like i don't know where to start like where it would even be who to ask there is a website called worldcat worldcat.org which is basically a huge master um library search uh that collect that is connected to collections of more than 10,000 libraries um and so if you like look for something in WorldCat and it and they have it, it's like in a collection they can like show you, they'll tell you where it is. Mm. And then you can reach out and be like, hey, you have such and such book or like such and such photograph or whatever. Um, I live, you know, I can't like come in, but like, is it possible for me to get a copy? And usually, like, yeah, that's what they want to, they want to do that. So yeah, <laughs> always do. reach out to people. <laughs> yeah. 
I know. It feels like uh, a lot of the times people are a little bit inaccessible. Yeah. But usually scholars and librarians are like, <laughs> we'll talk to you. Yeah, it's like the one, <laughs> the one where they're like, yeah, totally. Because they're nerds and they want to talk to us. That's the thing. thing. Like, speaking at, like, if someone emailed me about something I wrote, I would be, like, over the moon. Are you kidding me? Like, you read it? And I don't think that's true. Like, I would never encourage anyone to bug anyone else. Right? It's specifically, (laughs) like, like, librarians, archivists, scholars are like... (laughs) Yeah. Don't do this to, like... Uh, right, artists and writers and musicians. <laughs> <laughs> Very different fields. And like celebrity influencers. <laughs> no one wants you to tweet at them, but scholars do mm-hmm. want you to tweet at them. <laughs> uh, we're generalizing, but I gen- I actually think that's pretty true. No, it's, so. I, it's pretty true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to move away from primary sources, I want to talk about academic sources, right? So. Mm while we're on the subject of scholars liking to be emailed um academic sources are like i think the ones that feel the most shrouded in mystery often because they're so inaccessible they're so highly priced um and it you know so it feels like oh people don't want us to have this information or like oh there's no way to get this if you're not like in this like universe of like this closed academia and like the example is oftentimes you'll be like Oh, you wrote a paper and you try to look up the paper and it says it's 40 bucks to download the PDF or something. You you've you all have gone to that kind of website. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. what we're talking about. Right. Um so like Kathy just said in terms of like one of my bullet points on here is literally like if you ever find something and you want it and you can't figure out how else to get it, just email the person who wrote it. And most of the time, they will be like, heck yeah, brother, here's the PDF. <laughs> like, yeah. because they're not making any money off of it. So, you know, there's no reason for that. But, and also because, again, like academics, we generally like talking about our work and we generally like sharing it. Literally, the worst thing that would happen is if someone just didn't reply to you or said, like, no, sorry, which, oh well, you can move on then, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they say no, you're like, okay. Yeah. They're not good. You're not going to get like blacklisted or anything. Like, there's nothing, <laughs> there's no other consequences. <laughs> So that's the one thing you can always do is just like email and be like, hey, you can also honestly, you can, especially like smaller publishers, like smaller academic publishers or like journal editors, um, if it's like published in an academic journal, you can also just email them and be like, hey, and again, a lot of the times they'll just be like, yeah, totally, especially if you're not affiliated with the university, because like they know that mm-hmm. their stuff isn't accessible outside of that circle. Um, it's not something, you know, that most of us necessarily want, but, you know. Do you know why? Why is academic publishing the way that it is? Yeah. No. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I wish that I did. Um, just, it seems like it's just gatekeeping, right? It, it, I totally. I mean, and like, also. It, like, ever, if, you, if you ever did undergrad and your textbooks were like $120 a piece, this is the same sitch. It is, yeah. And, yeah, it is, it is, it's interesting. Like, I, my day job also involves working in academic, like, I don't work in academic publishing, but I work with academic publishers. Um, and it's like, it's just a very weird, convoluted, messy, like, not great system. <laughs> but I don't know why. Yeah, um, why? Why? It's, yeah, it's very weird to me. But to move on to actual places you can go to find things for free. Um, 
these are varying levels of legitimacy, so do with that what you will. Um, but to start, I want to shout out your local library. <laughs> because again, libraries, they're great. It's their job to help you find the stuff you want. Um, even if they don't have a specific book or a specific article that you're interested in, most libraries have a program called Interlibrary Loan where you can request something and they will get it from a different library and lend it to you. Um, usually, sometimes there's like limits on how much you're allowed to request and like how long you're allowed to have it or that kind of thing. But like they have methods of getting that material for you that you might not have. Um, and they also have people who are research librarians whose job it is is to help you do research, right? Like they are trained in research. <laughs> they know how to research stuff. Um, so they can help you like do searches. They can help you like figure out where to start, like all that stuff. So cannot say this highly enough. Library. Library, good. Talk to your librarians. Talk to your librarians. <laughs> Email them even if you don't want to go in. That's fine. Um, they are, they're cool. Next, I want to shout out Z Library, which is um, a repository of ebooks, and they also have some articles. Um, they have, so I will say, like Z Library has ebooks, like of everything, not just academic. So I wouldn't necessarily say use them to get like non-academic stuff, but like if they have, sometimes they have like textbooks on there. A lot of times they have like those very expensive academic books. And I always tell my students to just, like, get stuff off Z Library, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and similar to Z Library is Sci-Hub, uh, which is, they call themselves a shadow library that provides access to research papers and books. So their focus is more on, like, science papers, right? Um, which, again, are often hard to find outside of, like, paying a lot of money. Okay, so next on my list is uh jstor um jstor has academic work and they also have a lot of primary source material actually and about like 90 percent of what's on jstor in article as articles um is actually free to read uh it depends on your discipline like science stuff is less available than like humanities stuff uh just because like those disciplines have different ways of dealing with things um but if you have an account, you can read up to 100 articles a month for free. Um, the only caveat there is that you can't, if you're just, like, doing the free reading, you can't download the articles. Um, you can request it, like, you can request it if you, like, use a screen reader or, like, need it for accessibility reasons. Um, like, that's mm. obviously fine, but, like, otherwise you can only read online. Um, but there's also a bunch of stuff that's labeled free or open access and that you can freely download. Um, so you can also, like, just look up JSTOR Open Access and, like, search within that, and you can download whatever you want from that, and that's totally fine. Um, and again, if you find something on JSTOR and you're like, oh, I really like this, I want to have a download of it, um, you can go to your library or one of the other websites I mentioned um, and try to find it that way. Mm. Um, there's also academia.edu which hosts free PDF of articles, uh, academic articles. Um, many of these are actually uploaded, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the material on academia.edu is actually uploaded by the authors themselves. Um, sometimes it'll be like a draft version or like a not finalized version, which I think is maybe a way to get around like the copyright. Um, yeah, so uh, when I signed my contract, 
Um, this book is being published by a pretty large uh, academic publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, I am able to, I own my own words before the editor and the peer reviewing. Right. So it isn't, I am able to own that before other people put in work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, uh, that actually is a good thing to keep in mind is that if it's a draft version, they haven't necessarily been peer reviewed. Yeah. So, and they'll, they'll note like most of the time when I have like gotten a draft version of something off EDU, it says like, this is, and they'll specify like, don't use that. You can use this just to read it, but like, don't use this to publish with because it's not the mm. final version to cite yeah to cite but if you're just like interested in the information again and it's like written by someone who you like have verified and like trust that they're like not you know that they are a good source it's fine to read the draft version right just like keep in mm-hmm. mind that it's a draft and then uh one handy other trick i wanted to share is if you put the title of the article in quotes and add pdf and you search Google, you will probably find it. <laughs> yeah, because like oftentimes professors will put it on their website yeah. for their students. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's I usually this- where I get them. Yeah, same. I do that a lot. Um, like if I'm like, oh, I need this article and I can't get it on like JSTOR or whatever, I will just article title plus PDF. And um, there's other Google tricks I've seen. Like I know there's a way to search like the index of a website to pull material off of it. Um, I don't know how to do that, so I can't share that particular trick, but if you are, there's ways to do it. You could probably look it up. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, so those are the main, those are the main ones that I know and I use um, to get material for free. Um, Obviously, I also have, at at this point in my life, I have a university connection, although um, I don't have library, I don't have the library connection anymore, technically, but um, um, I want to remind people if you were an undergrad, if you went, if you had a ma- bachelor's degree or even high school, mm-hmm. honestly, high schools, plenty of high schools to do this, uh, contact your, the librarian, contact your old school if you're an alumni and they usually will give you access. They have an account and that's part of your right. You paid for mm-hmm. that undergrad degree. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of schools if even if they don't, sometimes schools will have a specific sort of like alumni program, but even if they don't, yeah, like Kathy said, just reach out and be like, "Hey, how do I get access to this?" and they will be mm-hmm. like, "Here's how." Um and again, the worst thing that happens is they tell you we can't help you. So yeah. it never hurts to ask. And another thing is all this asking of libraries and schools kind of run on a slower schedule yes um so if you ask someone it might it might be over a month before they can get something to you Mm -hmm. um it's just a slower schedule just something to keep in mind i know oftentimes when you tweet at someone you expect it within 24 hours (laughs) yeah no it's good to it's definitely that's also definitely good to keep in mind is like these are fields that move pretty slowly so you want to adjust your expectations accordingly and like yeah it's okay if it takes you a little bit. <laughs> like, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. And then um, another thing I, um, I mean, we're about to move into uh, conclusions. Yeah. If we're ready to do that. Um, so it's our conclusion segment. Uh, what did we learn? What were our goals? And what do we want our takeaways to be? And something I actually want to also keep in mind, uh, while you're doing research on a topic, is to have an open heart yes. and be willing to change your mind. Mm-hmm. Because very, very, very often, 
people do quote unquote research and really what they're doing is confirmation bias. They are mm -hmm. just reading to believe, to dig their heels in and uh, to confirm something that they already believe. They're trying to find something to, uh, to um, uh, verify their own opinion. Right. And I think it's really yeah. important when you're doing research that you got to have open mind and change your heart and be willing to grow and change and listen to primary sources and listen to people mm -hmm. and change your heart. You know? Yeah. And that's, I, that's a good point too. Cause I think that something that when I think of um, sort of to take it back to my, when I was teaching research, a lot of the times the structure for that would be like the student has a thesis and so then they only go out and find things that agree with that thesis, right? Mm -hmm. And just sort of like slot that in without actually thinking about the research at all. And I would do a lot to sort of encourage, you know, it's not bad to go into a project or like to have an idea and be like, I think this is the case. Let me like find out about it, right? That sort mm -hmm. of is a, and so a lot of people start thinking, like think that way, right? Um, but you can't let that be like, now I'm only going to find the three things that I know will say what I want them to say, and I will twist them and then use them <laughs> to be like, I'm correct. Like Kathy just said, like you need yeah. to be open to the idea that you're wrong. And maybe you'll be yeah. like, I think this is what's going on. And you'll start reading and it'll be like, oh, huh, actually, I see that this maybe is more important. Or I was thinking about it in this way, but maybe this way is better. Um, or not even and better, but just like equally valuable um and that's like a that's being a researcher that's yes. being that's being a scientist that's being a mathematician to be like oh i'm wrong mm -hmm. i was wrong and to publish it and tell people i was wrong yeah that, and that happens <laughs> that happens a lot even in the humanities um people will often like you know write an article and then like 10 years later write a follow-up that's just like yep here's how my position has changed and sometimes it's like it hasn't i've been right the whole time but sometimes it's like these are the spots that I missed. And so now I'm nuancing. And honestly, those are the people that really trust. Yes. <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they publish something and then they continue to research and question and question and question and they publish that, those are, those are really the people to trust. I would, I would say strongly. Oh, definitely. Because it shows that they're willing to like grow. Because it, you know, and this is something to keep in mind with academic research. Um, that stuff works on deadline and you have to publish to advance your career. Um, so just because it's like been peer reviewed and it's been through this process doesn't mean that it's like the perfect finished final project and that it can't change in the future. Like nothing is ever like set in stone that way because sometimes like you have to get the article out. And so then maybe once it's done, then you have the opportunity to spend more time thinking about it in a way that you didn't have for the first time. Um, and that's really common. That's actually a thing that like we were encouraged was like, you have to get it done. But like, if there's stuff that you have to sort of like skate by, note it, be like, you know, there's not like, it's outside of my scope to talk about whatever, but then like in the next paper, do that. So that's another thing to keep in mind is just that like it's an it's always sort of an evolving process and the importance is the important part is just to sort of be open to information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um, and so for like my conclusion, mostly I just wanted to share like how much stuff is out there for free. Like I realize that list seems like a small list, but there is like millions and millions and millions of articles that you mm -hmm. can read in those websites. Um and because it's hard to like figure out like where to go, right? 
Um, but I also want to add here too, and I don't usually do this, but if you have questions about researching, you can just email me. <laughs> my email, <laughs> my email is e h e t j a at gmail. Um, like Kathy said, academics move slowly. I am slow to reply to people. So if you're like, don't email. I, it, also, hey, if you're a student and you've got a paper due in two days, don't email me. That's not what I mean. <laughs> but if you're like, I'm really interested. We learning. can see through that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I didn't let my students do that to me. So um, if you if you have a question, though, if you're like, I want to learn more about this thing, I don't know where to start or like. I don't know how to use this website you mentioned or whatever. Like that's yeah, you can email me and ask and I'll do my best to like help you out. Cause I genuinely like helping people with research. I think it's cool. Mm. Um, I may say, go talk to your librarian if it's outside of my like ability, but <laughs> I am also here as a resource. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for bringing this uh, to us. I, I feel like this is what, um, when Remus uh, was like, I'm thinking of doing an episode on research. It seems like, it's like knowing how we are doing our research in drawing a dialogue. This is, uh, we are sometimes a primary source, but generally we are not a primary source, right? right? So it's, there's like, we always, just in case you're wondering, we always publish our citation mm-hmm. on our website, drawingadialogue.com, because we want to be uh, holding ourselves accountable. Um, to our work and to future changes. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do an episode on research. This is important. This is a um, the hidden aspect of what drawing a dialogue is. Mm-hmm. And I am so happy that you put together such an awesome episode, Remus. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um... And thank you. Thanks to uh, Downtown Boys. Uh, for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. Um, wait, for their song Wave of History. It doesn't yeah. say, this doesn't say, this is our intro. Did we edit this? Is this how, how I've always said this? Yeah. <laughs> really? I've just said thanks for their song? Yeah. I've never said that song is our intro music? I don't think so. Hold on, let me go. Oh I, I literally God. just copied from episode. I know, I know. I, I do believe I'm it. shocked. Well, uh, hey guys, uh, Downtown Boys, we use their song. That's why we thank them for the song. That would be so funny if this whole time we were just thanking a band. Like, I really, thank you Fleetwood Mac for writing <laughs> Chain. I really love okay, that Okay, hold song. on, I'm gonna pull back an, do we? <laughs> No, yeah, that's always... This is how I've been saying it this whole time. That's literally how you've been saying it this whole time. So thanks to Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. We use it as our intro and outro. It's off their album Full Communism. You can buy it off their band camp. (laughs) Five Um, years in, we finally drop who did the intro music. Yeah. hey (laughs) Um, uh, You can go to my... uh, uh, Education Comic Art Webs... Well, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. You used to do it. Okay. So um, you can go to comicarted.com, which is Kathy's great educational website about comics, about comics education. Um, And that's also the host of our website, drawingadialogue.com, which is where we put all those citations that we always highly encourage you to go look at. 
Um, you can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. You can tweet us at draw a dialogue minus the ing because of Twitter's character limits. Um, you can yes. follow me on Twitter at Remus Maurice, R E M U S M A U R I C E. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John. That's C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. I also have a uh, YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. I have a new YouTube video that I just did. It's me opening my mail, but I also talk about uh, taxes and (laughs) retirement accounts, if you are are curious. Um, I know, everyone's favorite. I also, like, talk about comic books. You do Um, give good advice about, like, taxes and stuff, though. I know. You help me out a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very helpful. Um, So what are you reading, Remus? Oh, so I'm reading, um, I'm doing a lot of reading right now. I'm in the research phase for my exam, for my PhD. Um, So I'm working on that chapter. So right now I am reading um, Phenomenology of Perception by, oh goodness, if I don't have it directly in front of me, I'm not going to remember. Let me just... Okay, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who Mm. is a French philosopher. This is a book from 1945. Um, Phenomenology is a specific philosophical approach that I don't need to explain right now because it would take too long. Um, It is it is really good. It's my first time really like sitting down and close reading like a pure philosophical text. It's not my first time reading something about phenomenology, but like usually like the phenomenology stuff i've read has sort of been through different lenses and this is like just pure straight up like a philosophy (laughs) which is a very different reading experience i'm shocked i like i that that was my i loved that that was my peanut butter jelly i love philosophy (laughs) I, i really like philosophy i've just never had like i never took any flaw like i didn't really have an opportunity to take philosophy classes and i just never like sought it out i guess like i have a my if if i had a um if the uh people who if the person who i had a professor who took a sabbatical during my senior year and she messed it up for me but if she hadn't gone on sabbatical i would have have i would have a minor in philosophy Mm -hmm. yeah it's fun it's just such a different it's such a different so like reading theory is very different from reading um like nonfiction or whatever, or fiction, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, reading philosophy is also very different from reading theory. So, yeah. so I'm sort of I learning think, a whole yeah, new philosophy. Reading. Yeah, that's like my favorite way to read, where you're like, I have no idea what you've been saying, and I haven't known what you've been saying for pages and pages and pages and pages. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what's happening, and yeah. then it, then it clicks. It starts to click. It's, yeah, you have to really favorite. let it like percolate. I've been doing yeah. this. Um, I've been doing this thing where I read in little 10-minute chunks um, to sort of, like, help manage my, like, capacity and my schedule. Um, And I think that actually is really helpful here because I can get through, like, a chapter in 10 minutes and then I have, like, a whole week to just, like, process it before I try Mm -hmm. to read more. Um, Because I read, like, once a a week. Yeah, I'm a very, very slow reader. That's just the way I read is slowly processing. I've always been, I've always been, like, really fast i mean I a fast reader but all, like my attention span is bad now but also um i'm doing a lot of work around like what my actual capacity is versus what i think i should be doing i know i i think that's that's the interesting part of like just because like fast reader versus slow reader mm-hmm. i feel like i that habit of slowly reading is because i'm like 
ruminating. Yeah, which is good. It's and I enjoy it so much more. I enjoy reading so much more than like slamming down a book, which I have done, but Mm -hmm. like that's not fun. I don't remember it at all. It's true. But if I want to really remember a book, I spend a really long time. It makes me so mad because like this is new. Like this is very new for me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for about like a year now, but it's like this so like approach to being like intentionally slow. Um, Mm -hmm. it makes me so mad because it works better and I retain information so much Mm -hmm. better. And I'm like, this, like, how dare you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How dare this be better? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what are you reading, Kathy? I mean, this is a funny, this is a perfect thing. So I finally, I just picked up, uh, Iris Murdoch's Nuns and Soldiers again. I actually don't know if I had already used this for what are we reading because I had set it down. I set it down. Like I was reading it a year ago and then I set it down for probably eight months and mm. I just finally picked it up again because I, I, I want to read it on a porch. And when it was too cold to read it on a porch, I just wasn't into it anymore. Aww. But Iris Murdoch is one of my favorite authors. Love her so much. And she it's interesting. People have had readings of her. She This is literary fiction. Um, but people have readings of her as a type of modern philosopher because she mm. has all these like sort of... Um, perceptions on the everyday um that is like Mm -hmm. uh, new and she was friends with philosophers and stuff she wouldn't call herself a philosopher but you can read her literary fiction as philosophy right Um, yeah yeah so this this is absolutely perfectly slots right into what we were literally just talking about (laughs) i'm like i'm like yeah i've been reading this book for a year i'm on page 77 out of 477 but um, I really like, I, and I say she's my favorite author, but I, uh, my favorite authors, I haven't read all their books because I just want to spend my time with them. Mm, I love it. And I think that's good. Yeah. Um, it's a lesson I had to learn the hard way, but it's, uh, oh, it's good. Oh, poor Rima. <laughs> oh, yeah, poor me. I'm fine. I mean, it was really annoying when I was in school. Yes. It's really annoying being a slow reader. It just, but, you know, I lo- it's much better for my own pleasure. It, yeah, um, I mean, I had to develop a strategy because you have to read fast in grad school because you get assigned like hundreds of pages a week. You are assigned physically impossible amount of pages to read. You have to skim. You skim. There's no other way to do it. And what I would do is I would, I would only read, I would pick, I would always pick two readings not to read. And I would just be like, I don't need to talk about these. It's fine. And then anything that I actually thought was interested and I actually wanted to like work with and remember. I just would come back to it later. I would just you know, like, start for myself and then be like, when I'm done with class, I'll actually read it. You know, this. this is actually interesting. We this is our what we were literally about to conclude the episode. But I do want to say, um, reading research papers is its own art. Yes. We just told you all these ways to find figure out how to find it. And reading them, y'all, I'm just gonna tell you, you're like, which ones do I read? Uh read the intro. Yes. And read the conclusion. Read yes. both of those. The intro's at the beginning, conclusion's at the end. Read those sections. They will talk about what they are going to talk about, and then they will conclude and tell you what they've proven. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything interesting in there, you can go find it within the body of the paper. Yes. Um, but that's how you do it. Yeah. Uh, you just read the intro, and if the intro isn't interesting to you, boot it. Yeah, that's, do not, you do not, because these are, like, what, like, 30-page essays, like. And they're dense. And they're dense, and you don't need to, you just don't, the the nice thing about academic introductions, if they're good, and 
you know, that's important, but like, is in the introduction, what you do is you say, this is what I am arguing, and this is how I am arguing it, and this is the way I am arguing it. And that's all you yeah. need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, my favorite, like, my intro, I like, my intro and in what's going to be published, I'm like, Section one, I do this and I conclude this. Section two, I conclude, I ask yes. this and I do this. And then when people, I'm assume, I'm hoping people will read the intro and be like, wow, section five sounds really interesting. And I want them to skip to section five. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through, this ain't like a normal kind of book. You do not have to read one you through four. You don't have to read the whole thing. Yeah. That's like the most freeing revelation of like working with academic writing is that like it's not actually designed to be, like you can if you want to read it start to finish and there's value in that but like you don't have to you never have yeah to. it's not no like one a story. reads the whole book yeah <laughs> no. it's, it's not like a story where you ha- where you aren't gonna understand chapter seven if you skip one through six yeah most ac- mo- like the way i do it and the way that has been like not everyone does this but a lot of folks you kind of treat each section of an, an article as its own separate mini paper so that's why it's okay to skip around because usually it's they'll like maybe make references but it's not like building on itself in the same way that like a fiction book does and and, and if they do make references they'll say as i said in chapter in section three or and something. then if you're and like then oh, you can go back. yeah exactly yep so yep um wonderful conclusion we just picked <laughs> butt on this one thank you so much remus thank you. Um, and thank you for listening to drawing a dialogue uh my name is kathy g johnson and i'm remus jackson Solidarity forever. Bye.